quick announcements uh, before we dig in tonight. Um, okay, uh, our uh, the mine is going to be off because of fall break, October 4th, October 11th. So if I've got that right on my fingers, that means next week and the week after we're off. Okay, so kind of do that. You don't want to, you know, show up and us not be here. But the other side of it is on the 18th, we're back. So don't miss that part and not come back when we're back on the other side. So again, next week, the 4th, the week of the 11th, we're gone. But on the 18th, we are back for the mine. And then I don't remember if I had said this to you guys or not uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, We're right now trying to investigate if we can get some refinancing done on our loans. Did I say that out loud in here? Okay. All right. So I just want to encourage you guys to continue to pray about that. If that were possible and if it could happen, uh, it just dramatically changes what our payment is every single month and would be a fantastic thing for us. So again, please, just every time you think of it, if you would just drop a prayer to the Lord and say, God, that would just be so cool if you would give us favor with the banks, if you'd allow the appraisal to come in where the appraisal needs to come in, uh, that would just be a great moment. Okay. Do we have, we got microphones tonight? All right. On that, I just want to remind you again as we get to questions, uh, it's a good thing if you wait for the microphone, we uh, tape this, and uh, we're hearing that there are soldiers overseas uh, who are listening to the mine uh, where they're stationed. We've got people all around the United States who listen to the mine, so uh, it helps if they can hear your questions before I give my answer uh, as we do this. Let's pray real quick, and then we will... uh, just dig into the book of Ephesians together. Hey, Lord, we, uh, we just come to you tonight and we just ask that you would guide us, that we would be uh, just right on with Scripture as we give our answers, that we'd be willing to wrestle through and chew on things that maybe we've never heard before, that God, in the, in the moments when maybe an answer is frustrating, we would go back and and look for more scripture and study these things even on our own, on the deal. But God, more than anything else, we ask you to meet with us tonight. That you would honor the fact that we took this time by touching our hearts. And causing us to grow closer to you uh, tonight for having studied. God, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, if I'm understanding right, you guys got to chapter 2. Does that sound right? So you guys blazed last week. That's remarkable. Let's have to have Aaron come in once in a while just to catch us back up to where we need to be. So, all right. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So verse one, what does it mean in verse one when it says you were dead? What does that mean to be dead spiritually? Okay, so go with the mic. Uh, Living in sin. Okay, living in sin. But so, so let's ask this question. Can a Christian be dead, spiritually dead? Yes, no. How many say yes, a Christian can be spiritually dead? How many say a Christian cannot be spiritually dead? Okay. Pastor Lynn. Yeah. Entrenched in worldly ways. Entrenched in worldly ways. 
All right. Pastor Matt. Yeah. I got one here. All right. All right. <laughs> I think it's uh, being spiritually dead is a disconnection or, or no longer connection with God, obviously. Okay. No, there's no connection. And what does that mean when you say there's not a connection with God? What do you mean by that? Um, on a sp- spiritual level, what, uh, what um, obedience, uh, living with, with the Lord every day. I, I, it's just okay. day in and day out, everything. All right, so let's, let's, let's dig down on this for a second. Can a Christian be spiritually dead? No. Okay. Here's why. Okay. The word dead here uh, means to be separated. Okay. And it's a, it's, it's a relational death. Okay. Now you got to understand this in the context of you and I, as we live in Western culture, when we hear the word, the word dead, you and I immediately start thinking about the body. That's, that's a very Western way of you and I thinking. And what you've got to remember is that as the authors are writing and as they're using their terminology, very often they're doing this, well, they are doing this from an Eastern culture, from an Eastern viewpoint. And in Eastern culture, the important thing about death is not what happens to the body, it's what happens to the relationship. And so the loss of death was not, hey, they're not physically with us anymore. The loss of death was, I can no longer be with, I can't be around them. I can't share life with them. That's why uh, if you've ever uh, seen somebody in Eastern culture and if their children are disobedient, it's possible that a father would say to his children, look, 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 if you marry that person, if you go do that thing, then you will be dead to me. Now, you and I would never say that in Western culture. That just doesn't make sense to us. That's not terminology we would use. But in Eastern culture, it is. And what that father is saying to that son or that daughter is, I will relationally cut you off. We will be dead relationally. It'll, it'll be as if you are gone relationally. Okay? So in this passage, it says, you and I were dead. Okay? And that's the interesting part for it says, for as for you, you were dead. Okay. So what the passage assumes is, is that the Christians he's talking to, all of them are now not dead anymore. They are alive. Okay. And here's, here's the answer. A Christian cannot be dead once they're made alive. You and I who are in Christ are alive, okay? Death, spiritual death, is pre-Christ. It's dead in our sins and trespasses, okay? But the death, and again, you need to hear this, the death is a relational death. In other words, it says, we were relationally dead to God. That's, That's where it was. So, but here's the thing I think we were struggling with tonight. What do you do with backslidden Christians? What do you do with... um, disobedient Christians. Okay. I was going to actually ask the question of if you've truly accepted the Holy Spirit into mm-hmm. your life and been baptized in the Holy Spirit, then you can't be dead in Christ, but you can choose not to walk with the Holy Spirit. Sure. So, and, and again, we, and I would agree with you. We, matter of fact, we talked about this, I think, a little bit two weeks ago. Remember, we talked about the idea that once you become a Christian, you cannot stop being a Christian. That, that is an impossibility for you to stop being a Christian. Do we remember that? Yes. How many remember that? 
Okay, how many are still confused about that? Okay, we remember that. So once you become a Christian, it would be, think about this. If you are made alive in Christ, if you are made a son or a daughter in Christ, and remember, we said, look, this death here is a relationship death. Okay, so let's think about it this way. And you understand that the reason that God says to you and calls you and I sons and daughters is because that was the best human equivalent to the relationship that you and I now have with him. That was the best way for you to understand this new status that you and I have was to say, look, I am now going to be a father to you and I'm going to treat you as a good father, as a right father. So all of us that have father issues and yuck in the past, can't do the way a good father would treat his children. That's the status that we're going to have now. Okay, I saw a microphone and then keep going. Yep. How about a Christian that decided later to reject it? To reject God completely. Okay. okay. So what about a Christian that later rejects God? Okay, so here we come back to it, and it's simply this. And if you're still struggling with this because the majority of us in the room have kind of got it, I'll spend some time afterwards. We'll dig a little deeper on how this works. And anyone, who knows what the doctrine is, once saved, always saved? What, what would the theologians call it? Anybody know? This is, this is an extra 10 cents tonight, guys. Okay, it's eternal security. It's eternal security. So the next time you're out with a theologian, you just go, yeah, I believe in eternal security, and you'll impress them. So it's eternal security. You cannot lose eternity. Your eternity is secure, eternal security. So God says, look, the best way I can describe this new relationship with you is father to son, parent to child. And, and despite all the verses, guys, and I'm just telling you, there are zillions of verses in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 we did. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. John chapter 8, verse 38. I mean, there's just tons of passages. First Peter uh, talks about being born again, not a corruptible seed. There's tons of verses on eternal security. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, an amazing passage, eternal security. But even if that's not enough for you, then just this conversation about sonship should help. So here's the question I always ask, okay? If you have a child, if you have a child, and that child gets to about 15 or 16, let's, let's make it a daughter, and at 16, she falls in love with the guy. The guy you always prayed would never come into his life, her life. The, the hell's angel, motorcycle driving, drug dealing, horrible guy. And she comes to you one day and she announces to you, I am going to hop on the back of his motorcycle and we are going across the country together. And you beg her, you say, don't do it, don't do it. This will be the worst decision of your life. Don't do it, don't do it. What if she goes anyways? Is she still your daughter? Is she? Are you sure? While she's riding cross country with the guy. She does everything. Everything that you as a parent would hope that your daughter would never do. She's still your daughter? On what on what day, on what day does she stop being your daughter? What thing does she do that you would finally say you are not my daughter anymore? What is that thing? And God's answer is exactly the same. When you become my child, 
There is no thing. There is no moment you stop being my child. And you may break my heart. You may disappoint me madly. You may look me in the eyes and say, God, I hate your guts and I spit in your face and I'm going to do exactly what you begged me to never do and I'm going to behave in the way that you always hoped I would never behave. But there is not that day that you stop being my child. And matter of fact, think about this for a second. Jesus tried to teach us this. Remember the story of the prodigal son. On what day did the son stop being the son in the story? Never. Matter of fact, the father, the Bible says, stood looking down the road waiting for the the jerk to return, the disenfranchised. No, waiting for his son to come home. And it's exactly what God does in the moments that you and I live in rebellion. He looks down the road waiting for you and I to come home. Okay, so question. Is that why we put the unconditional love on the, the kids? Huh? Is that why we put the unconditional love on them? You know, if, I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I think here's what happened. I think God, in the, when he wired us, wired us in a way that, that when that little thing came, and ugly as they usually are when they're born and all that, that, that you and I immediately knew that child needed that unconditional love. Because isn't it, isn't it weird that, we, that the most natural thing we do as a parent is just to simply say, I mean, think about this, before the child does any, matter of fact, the child does a whole bunch wrong. The child keeps you awake all night, they poop all over the place, they throw up in your lap. I mean, think about it, they do a lot wrong, and yet you and I are drawn to offer an unconditional love to that child. Do you think it was a mistake that God said, look, 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 as you and I have this conversation about your new status, think of daddy, think of his child. I, I, I need you to get this is this new relationship that you and I are getting into, and I'm going to treat you that way. And that's why he chose that illustration, why he uses that terminology, because it's the closest human example we have of how God then chooses to treat us once we become children become his with that unconditional love yeah absolutely i had another really really brilliant point and it just and getting old bad i how did that happen it was it was amazing i was stunned when i had it on the deal um yeah yeah it's gone i i wish i could do i wish i could do what mark gunger how many of you guys were at the conference with mark gunger and he said you know every once in a while he just has to push the reset button but doesn't work for me so All right, um, so again, eternal security, once a child... Oh, let's get back to... So what happens to a Christian who backslides? Because Christians backslide. I guarantee you, probably every person in this room says, I know, I know someone who at some point in their life made a profession of faith, said that they were a Christian, maybe even lived like a Christian for a while. And I'm just telling you right now, they, they... they live, they live worse than most of the heathens I know right now. And, and this is what you need to hear. Backslidden Christians have a tendency when they backslide to backslide ugly. Okay? And part of that is, I think, because their consciences are bothering them and because, they're, because God is, you know, and so they, the rebellion tends to be like crazy, over-the-top type rebellion when Christians go. How do you think the prodigal son ended up at the pig pen? I mean, usually Christians don't backslide average. We backslide big time. But here's the question. Is that person still a Christian? And the answer is yes. So now let me ask you the million-dollar question. 
if I can become a Christian, think about this. If I can become a Christian, or as I walk down to the front of the church and I meet with a counselor or I sit in a cafe and, and, and someone leads me to the Lord, I ask Jesus Christ to come into my heart, be my Savior. I'm a Christian, which means I get the fire escape, right? I get the free pass, no hell. Why not then just go live like the devil? I mean, if you're telling me that there's nothing I can do, there's no behavior that I can participate in, there's none of that, why not just go live like crazy and do whatever I want to do because I got a free pass to heaven? Pastor Lynn, at that point, don't you think that you don't want to be called least in heaven? You know, I mean, like we have talked before and among friends, I had a friend that committed suicide and she was saved. And a lot of people struggle with that, thinking that that's the ultimate sin. But I remind them that if you steal a piece of gum and somebody commits suicide, sin is not measured any different than lying, cheating, stealing. I don't think there's a measure there. Sin still sin. So, okay. and I mean, uh, really, I mean, can you can you say that your sin is greater than somebody else's sin? It's still measured as sin. I here, so here's what I'm gonna suggest. I think you can. I don't think all sin is the same. Okay, and I know, and I know that's gonna freak some people out in the room because pastors for a lot of years have sat around and said all sin is the same. I don't think that's what the Bible says. Okay, so here, here's my first challenge. And then answer uh, about suicide, because I feel that you can still go to heaven, still be saved if you commit suicide. Okay, be, and, and I think you're, so let, let's try to fix that one real quick and we'll get back. I think you're exactly right on suicide, and here's why. Because there is no such thing as a mortal sin. That's a man-made doctrine, and the, the doctrine goes something like this. It's a mortal sin, and since you're not here to confess it to a priest and have that priest absolve you of it, you died with a mortal sin still on you, and therefore you'd go to hell because you died without the absolution of a priest. It's an absolutely man-made doctrine that has no foundation in Scripture. So I think you're dead right when you say, or absolutely right means a better term, uh, When you say that suicide is not the unforgivable sin and people don't, you know, don't go to hell over suicide. It's just, it's just there is absolutely nothing in the Bible to support it. It's a man-made uh, doctrine. And back to what we said a couple weeks ago, remember, that sin of suicide, which it is, it's sinful. That sin of suicide, Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross going, boy, I wonder what, you know, will they, will they take the pills? Will they pull the trigger? Jesus died for that sin on the cross just like every other sin. So in that sense, you're right that all sin was covered at the cross and done. So let's go back to, for a second, I won't take too long, rapture, but to the idea of all sin is the same. So here's my challenge. Show me that verse. Because we've all been told that for a lot of years in a lot of churches that all sin is the same. Show me the verse that says that. There you go. We all fall short, but that doesn't mean that all falling short is the same shortness. Okay, so, all right. So, I, let, I but let's go this basically, way. Basically, we all fall short of the, the glory. Sure, you do. Romans six twenty three five eight, you know, and so on. We all know the path of salvation. However, to me, and personally, sin is still sin. If you're Thank God we don't judge that way. And to me, if you're going to steal a pack of gum and that person's going to go out and, 
you know, hit somebody over the head, you know, it's still sin, no matter how you look at it. Okay. So, so, so tell me, so tell me this. Okay. If, if somebody, I just feel there's a Mormon issue there in the sense of the word. And I hate to say that, but Mm -hmm. when we go to court and if I stole something or this person was speeding, Mm -hmm. there's a time in jail. Right. There's a measurement of time. Sure. If we go to hell, we're not going to go to hell for a duration of two weeks, two months, whatever. Or if we right. go to heaven, but, but I the, always the, think you're going to okay. be Okay, so that's a great heaven. question. The, the answer is that going to hell is not payment for sin. It's not. In, in other words, that's, that's a total, another, again, total misconception. You can't go to hell and burn off Jesus. your sins. There is no right. payment for sin in hell. So hell is just simply this. The reason a person goes to hell is because they said, I reject, I don't want God. So God says, okay, I'll let you, I'll let you spend eternity finding out what it's like to be separated from me. And, and so that's, that's, that's the the consequence of that choice. People go to hell because they chose not to allow God to be in their life and not to have a savior in their life. They don't go to hell to burn off their sins. Again, a total misconception. You can't burn off a sin. It's just not possible. Huh? There are not levels in heaven, but there are rewards in heaven. And there are positions of authority in heaven. Okay? So let me get this real quick because I don't want to take us too long on the side. Here's, here's, I'm going to tell you that intrinsically you know this is not true. Intrinsically you know this is not true. Matter of fact, if all sin is the same, it's unjust. And God is not unjust. He's not. Okay? So let's go this way. Let's, let's imagine for a second that, um, I'm trying to get one that will ring for you. Okay, let's go this way, because I think let's, we'll do it backwards. A guy shoplifts, he shoplifts $5, okay, $5 item. He goes before the judge, and the judge says to him, uh, hey, uh, you're going to spend three nights in jail because you shoplifted a $5 item. Are we okay? Are we okay? All right. A guy kidnaps and rapes an 11-year-old girl. And the judge says to him, you're going to spend three nights in jail. You okay? Whoa, 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 whoa. All sin's the same. All sin's the same. And you intrinsically know that's unjust. You intrinsically know that that would be wrong. Okay? So let me give you some passages. Go with me to Matthew. Chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Okay, here's what it says. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin... Woe to you, Bethesda, for the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, ready? It will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. And probably Tyre and Sidon are a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? It'll be more, it will be more tolerable for, for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, didn't he just say, you're going to be judged more harshly than them? Isn't that what he just said? 
How can you judge somebody more harshly if all sin is exactly the same? You can't. The reason you judge more harshly is because shoplifting is not the same as kidnapping a little girl and molesting her. That's when you can judge more harshly because the crime is more harsh. So sin is not the same. Let me give you... um, We'll finish reading real quick. And uh, for you, uh, Capernaum, you will be lifted up to the skies. No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have been uh, remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. All right, go with me to another passage. Uh, Mark chapter 18. Whoops, that's not going to work since there's not a market. How about Matthew 18? I can't read my own writing. Sorry about that, guys. Hey, it was a good Bible quiz. Matthew chapter 18. Okay, it's a good one. Matthew chapter 18, verse 6. Here's what it says. But if any one of you causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Isn't that greater judgment? Aren't there passages that talk about, hey, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, be better if you hadn't been born? What about the passage that says, woe to you that want to be teachers, knowing you shall receive the greater, what? Judgment. If you presume to teach others, but you teach them errantly or teach them wrong, leave them in the... You'll be judged more harshly. You can't judge more harshly if there's not greater violation. Okay, so we, do we have questions real quick? Yes, please. I just... Would, uh, if you could clarify, back when we were studying the Bema Seat Judgment, um, back in May, you had mentioned that sin is not mentioned because all our sins are washed away and Absolutely. we are measured by our deeds. So who is this judgment speaking to? And I'm having a hard time differentiating the two. Okay, okay. So that's a great question. If I'm a Christian, all my sins are washed away under Jesus Christ. No matter what that sin is and no matter what size it is, it's all washed away. Matter of fact, the Bible says that you and I take on the holiness of Jesus Christ. And if you were to go to God and say, God, remember that horrible moment and remember that, that day that I did the most horrendous thing of my life. And, 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 and I, I, God, and he'd say, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because it's washed under the blood of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Scripture says he removes it so far from us as the east is from the west. And he says, and I will remember it no more. Perfect forgetfulness for the sins of a Christian. But what is not true is that sin, when I committed it, was all the same. Lying is not the same as adultery. It's just not. It's not the same sin. There is greater impact. There's greater damage. There's greater repercussion. And there's greater discipline for the sin. There just is. So, you stand in heaven, and here comes the judgment time. There are going to be people and as that don't know Jesus, who don't have their sins covered. And as that gets played up in heaven, all the darkness of their sin gets exposed. Okay? Here's why, here's why pastors have struggled with this. And that is, what does the average person say is the reason they get to go to heaven? How do I get to go to... The average person who doesn't know Jesus, why do they say they get to go to heaven? Because I am basically a good person. And so the fear has been, all through, is that 
wait, 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 wait. If you say that's a little sin and that's a big thing, sin, then they're going to say, look, yeah, I've got like, you know, a couple hundred little sins, but I'm so much better than my neighbor because he's got like hundreds of big sins. And so that's how it, and, and the, the fear is, is that people start trying to stack up little sins against big sins and somehow they think they get a pass into heaven, which we know that's errant. That's completely wrong because how many sins does it take to keep you out of heaven? One. One. So the whole discussion about are sins bigger than other sins, it takes one sin. It takes one moment of unrighteousness to not be able to stand in the presence of a completely righteous, holy God. So, and I don't care how small that one sin is. One is too many. One and you, and back to the, one and you are a lawbreaker. One, you know, the guy can't stand there and say, hey, I only stole $5. Yeah, but I don't care. You're a shoplifter. You are a lawbreaker. And one sin is too many sins in heaven. One sin. That's why we all need a savior. But are all sins created equal? And the answer is no. There's not. There's greater punishment. There's greater discipline in this life and in the next. Um, Pastor Lynn, um, yeah. just, I know there's a scripture somewhere in, in the Bible that states, going back to, um, to the difference between sins, um, it states that God will judge the sin of fornication and blaspheme. And I don't know, um, well, I guess, the severity of it, but to me, that, that tells me that there is a, a difference of sins. And I don't know why it states that he will that it states that he will judge those. Okay, you have to say that again because I wasn't able to follow. Okay, the... there's a scripture just that I can't. Um, I don't know where it's at right now, but it states that that God Himself will judge two sins, and that is the sin of blaspheming and fornication. Are you yeah. aware of that? Um, I don't. Scripture? I don't know where. Yeah, I don't. I think okay. you're gonna have to go study that because I. I don't know anywhere in Scripture that it says God's going to judge only two sins. Okay. I have no, I have no idea I've where... i a, a Scripture. I'll, I'll you have to find that. So bring it to me. We'll take a look at it together. Okay? Yeah? Um, I've heard that sin is sin, and that's, you know, Christ covered it all, and that's what I've thought for a long time. And, you know, when you look in Matthew um, 5, you know, 21, and then 527, it talks about murder and adultery, and just how even thinking about adultery, you've actually committed it in your heart. Right. And so then how would that be different? You know what I mean? It seems like they're equating the thought and the action, and that as being the same. Yeah, and, and actually, I'm going to argue to you that it's not. Matter of fact, I'm going to argue that that's probably one of the best evidences that sin is not the same. Okay? Here's, here's why. When he says, if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed it where? In your heart. And in that moment, what he's saying is, hey, you need to know that in that moment you have an adulterous heart. You do. And that's, that's absolutely legitimate. If I hate my brother, if, if I seethe with anger at my brother, then Jesus says, look, you've already committed murder in your heart. You haven't done it, but you've committed it in your heart. Right? So we've got that so far. And that's legitimate. I mean, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But let's stop for a second. What if you believe that's the same sin? If you believe that committing adultery in your heart is exactly the same as actually doing it, 
Well, then once you've lusted in your heart, why not go do it anyways? You're already guilty. If you believe that murdering in your heart is the same as actually murdering, why not go murder the guy? Because you've already done it. It's not the same. There is greater ramification. And all he's saying is, you, you do have a murderer's heart, you do have an adulterer's heart, and you have committed sin in your heart. Because here's what you need to know. The prevailing religious thought at the time was, as long as you didn't do it, you hadn't committed the sin. Jesus is teaching that that's not true. He's saying, no, 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 no. If you have a murderer's heart, you have committed murder in your heart. But it's not the same as if you did it. It's just you have a murderous heart. If you commit adultery in your heart, don't sit there and go, well, I'm an adulterer in my heart. I think I'll go cheat on my wife. You realize you haven't done it yet. And if you go do it, think about the ramifications of that. Think about, think about what happens if you actually carry through with an adulterous heart. Let's, uh, all right. All right. What just, wait, wait, before you, all right, men in the room. Okay, men, men. Men, you're going to give me one minute of honesty. Okay, one minute of honesty. 30 seconds of honesty. All right, how many men in this room, since they've been married, would honestly say, I've lusted after another woman? Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. All right, if all sin's the same, then go ahead, just go do it. Just go commit adultery. If it's all the same, you've already done it in your heart. Go do it. Women. Women. Are you okay forgiving us that we lusted in our heart? Is it going to be different if we go do it? Okay. I I think we just answered the question, didn't we? It's different. It's different. Yep. It's... I'm going to suggest I'm going to suggest that it's in, it's intellectual suicide to say they're the same. Yeah, yep. Whoever's got the mic, Pastor Lind, is yep. Luke twelve ten come into this where the uh, unforgiven sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because that that might be a different sin. Yeah, uh, well, you, I guess you could say that it, it makes a good argument for the fact that all sins not the same because the Bible seems to say there's one sin that would not be forgiven. So you could you could make that argument. I just got, All right, we're going to do about two more seconds on this, and then we're going to get off, okay? All right, this, this, I, just a quick, I, I stirred the pot, and now then we're going to be done. All right, so... A, a quick clarification yeah. on uh, one thing. I'm a Christian, I, I'm saved, but I still face a day of judgment, correct? No. No? No. Okay. All right. All right. So this will help be the segue off of it. Here we go. Okay, because we're back to the original question. All right. If you are a Christian, okay... All your sins are forgiven. Big, medium, small, large, all of them. All of them are forgiven. What day were they forgiven on? The day you became a Christian. Done. Okay? You immediately move to a different judgment. Okay? Up until that moment, up until the moment you became a Christian, you were heading like every other person in history, every other person in the world who did not know Jesus. You were heading toward a thing called the white throne judgment. The witty throne. It's, it's, that actually is white. Okay, That's white throne judgment. Okay. Is that better? Okay. The white throne judgment. So here's the deal. At the white throne judgment, think movie projector. And at the white throne judgment, 
Every single thing that you have done in your life is going to be shown at the white throne judgment. Why does God do that? Because the average person who doesn't know God says, I'm pretty good. I should go to heaven. And when you stand in the presence of a holy God and he begins to show the movies of your life, every sin you committed, every sin you dreamed in your heart, and they all go up on the screen. Okay, let me help you with this. I'm nine years old. My grandma died. I want you to know I was an amazing nine-year-old. You know why? Because I was pretty darn convinced that my grandma was in heaven watching me. And I didn't want my grandma, because she was a saint, to see me do anything bad. Imagine standing in the presence of a holy God. And they're playing the movie. You ever gone to a movie and taken your kids and you didn't realize how bad it was and now you're sitting next to your kids and you're squirming? Imagine sitting in the presence of a holy God and the movie is you. Okay? White throne judgment. And here's what I believe. I believe that the average unsaved person is going to get about 10 minutes into that movie and he's going to go, okay, 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 okay. I quit. Turn off the movie. I get it. I get that I'm a sinner. I get that I don't deserve heaven. Let's just stop. So all those years of I'm such a good person and I'm okay and I get... I don't think that movie gets more than 10 minutes in the presence of a holy God. Okay? All of us were headed to that movie showing. When you and I became a Christian, the moment you and I became a Christian, you and I no longer go to the white throne judgment. We go to a thing called the Bema Seat. Which happens, anybody remember, when does the Bema Seat happen? During the... When? During the tribulation. Okay? All the Christians are in heaven during the tribulation. The Bema Seat and the Bema Seat. How many sins are at the Bema Seat? Zero. Why are there zero sins at the Bema Seat? Because these are Christians. And all their sins have been washed away. And the Bema Seat is only about reward. It's about the works we've done in the name of Jesus Christ. Completely different judgment. When you ask for forgiveness and yeah. you ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins, yep. should you name your sins one by one or is it a Go for blanket? it. If you, have, if you can do I that, go say. for it. Go for it. You know, the, here's, so here's the problem. I just got I just, I just to confess day? to you. I, I can't remember the sins I did two hours ago. I, I, it doesn't. You know, I no. Here's the thing, and I don't want to be too sarcastic. I think, yeah, I think, I think, if you're sitting before your Lord and and God's convicting you specifically about sins in your life, you ought to say, God, I acknowledge that was wrong, that was my sin. I think that's powerful to say. In the same way, when somebody's apologizing to you, it's a lot different when someone says, "Hey, I'm sorry," or "Will you forgive me?" than if somebody says, "Look, I get that when I said that." I crossed a line and that you did not deserve for me to say that. That's such a more powerful apology. And yeah, I think, I think when you and I go before a holy God with our sin, do I have to do that? No, I don't have to do that. But I think it's powerful in my life and I think it's a powerful testimony to my God when I say, look, I understand the depth of my violation. I understand why that was so out of bounds for me.
Okay? And I think that's a, it's a healthy thing to do. Maybe it's a better way. It's not a requirement. It's a healthy thing. Yep. So the repenting that we did at the moment that we accepted Christ or asked Christ into our heart. Yep. We repent for yep. our sins. And then we get baptized and our sins are washed away. The repentance that we did at that moment covers that. Okay. So I'm going to back you up. And, uh, and you may want to come talk to me afterwards because you may believe differently. I don't care if you got baptized or not. I don't care. And here's the reason I don't care. The thief on the cross did not get baptized. And yet he went to heaven. Okay. No, but so, I'm saying the repentance, the part of repenting to okay. ask him in. So the minute I became a Christian, which I believe in that moment, you and I repent of our sins. We repent that we've done wrong. In that moment, all of my sin is forgiven. And there's the big word, all. Every single sin. How much time do we have? All right. All right. Super quick. Thank okay. You, so here's when... I'm sorry. How, how, how in gear are our brains right now? Are our brains in gear? Okay. Here's what I'm going to have us do then. Because we're struggling with this. I'm going to take us to a passage that theologians have argued about for a hundred years. Okay. If you can follow along, if you can get this passage, it is the most remarkable passage in all of scripture in answering the questions that we're dealing with tonight. But you got to put your thinking caps on to get to the other side of this passage. Okay. So clear the register. Okay. Here we go. Hebrews chapter six. Okay. We're getting a lot of verses done tonight. We're getting some good Bible study though tonight. So here we go. Hebrews chapter six. All right, so here's what's going to happen. We're going to read a passage of Scripture that I'm promising you right off the bat is going to confuse us. But as we pick it apart, if you'll follow, it's going to get really, really clear. And then when it gets clear, it will get really, really powerful. Okay? All right, here we go. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age. Okay, so who are these people? Christians. Okay, so here we are. This is this, this person's a Christian, and the Bible just said there is something that is impossible for this Christian. Right? It is impossible for this Christian. We're following so far. It is impossible for this Christian. Here we go. If, verse 6, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. I thought we said Christians couldn't fall away. I thought we said Christians couldn't lose their salvation. Okay, grab Mike. Would that be the sin of rejection then? I don't think so because, remember, it says they were Christians. You said that, you said before you drew the picture, that the number one sin was Mm. rejection. Right. If you reject um, God. Right. And you're not a Christian, how can that be a sin to reject 
it's wrong and you're condemned. I understand that. It's not mm-hmm. a good deal. But how is it a sin to reject God? Because anything I do in disobedience to God is sin. And if God is saying, come be my child, and I say, God, I don't want you to go jump in a lake, I'm, that's sin. I've just disobeyed. Right? Any act of disobedience is sin. So here's the thing. Let's get back to the, the thing. If a person's a Christian, it just said, if that person falls away, it's impossible for them to come back to Jesus. Isn't that what the scripture just said? But I thought you and I said Christians can't fall away. Isn't it saying it, it's impossible for those who have once been enlightened to fall away? Well, I don't know, because it says it's impossible if those who've been enlightened, those who've tasted of the script of, of God, those who've become Christians, if they fall away, it's impossible to restore them again. Because they never fell away. Oh. They can't fall away because they can't. Okay. And they won't because they won't. So you're close. Okay, good for you. All right, so here we go. So let's, let's process this for a second. Okay, let's go the other direction because doing this backwards is going to help us do it forward. All right, let's suppose that this scripture is actually teaching that people can lose their salvation. Let's just go that way. And you need to know there's a lot of denominations, there's a lot of groups of Christians that are going to teach that you can be a Christian and then you can sin and then you can fall away. You can stop being a Christian. Okay, here's the number one question you need to ask anybody who comes and believes that or comes that direction biblically. How many sins does it take to fall away? What, what sin is it that, you know, just that same question we asked about parents. What sin is it that your child does that they stop being your child? And here's the crazy part. Think about this for a second. If this was true, if you could lose your salvation, if you could like, you know, commit 150 sins and then the 150th sin, you stop being a Christian. Don't you think the Bible authors would have written and said, look, guys, guys, you need to keep track. You need to, and, you know, I lied and then I cheated and then I stole. And you need to keep track because if you get past 150, you're going to fall away. Don't you think that would be an important part of Scripture to give to us, and yet Scripture is completely silent that way? Never says, hey, look, you know, here's the line. You can't find a place in Scripture that says, whoa, 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 you're, you're on the line. You're about to, you know, lose your salvation, guys. So the question you have for anybody who teaches that doctrine is, what sin or how many sins make you a non-Christian again? And no one can answer that question because it's not biblical. It's not in the Bible. Okay, but here's the more important part. If you go that way through the scripture, if that's what you teach through the scripture, and if this Christian can become a non-Christian again, okay, if that, if this Christian can now become a non-Christian, what does the rest of the passage say? If they fall away, it is, okay, it is impossible. If they fall away to be brought back to repentance, Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. So if a Christian stops being a Christian, can they be a Christian again according to this scripture? No. Never. So think about this. You wouldn't want anybody to become a Christian until they were 90. 
so that they wouldn't commit the 150 bad sins, lose their salvation, and never get to be a Christian again. The smartest thing you could do then is wait until you knew you were dying. Ask Jesus in your heart at the last possible minute so that you couldn't possibly break the quota. You follow so far? It's absurd. It's absurd. I don't have any other word to say. It's absurd. Nobody can tell you how many sins it takes to become to not be a Christian. You would never want to be a Christian till the last possible moment in your life if this was true. It's just absurd. Go ahead. Um, wouldn't it also be proving God wrong? I mean, if we can lose our salvation, it's taking away from everything he did on the cross, saying, okay, well, he died for nothing. It would take away from everything he did. Okay. You just, you just hit a nail on the head, okay? Because look what the passage just says, okay? Go back to what the passage says. If they fall away to be brought back, it's impossible for that to happen. And then it tells you why it's impossible to bring them back. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Why would a person who was a Christian, think about this, why would a person who was a Christian who now lost their salvation. If they tried to come back and be a Christian again, why would they be crucifying Jesus again? What? There you go. Because what they're saying is, Jesus, the first time you died on the cross, saved me the first time, but it wasn't enough to keep me saved. So apparently this cross, the one you did 2,000 years ago, ran out. It was limited in its effect. And so now, Jesus, for me to be a Christian again, you've got to come back and die again to do the new sins that just made me a non-Christian. Are we following so far? And here's what you're doing is you're shaming the cross. You're saying the old cross, the first time you, it wasn't enough. It wasn't good enough. And I've got new sins that exceed the power of the cross. And so, Jesus, you need to come die again for my new sins. Isn't that interesting? Okay, real quick. Pastor Lynn, how I'm reading this is that they weren't actually Christians. They'd been enlightened. They'd been aware of the Word of God. They'd, you know, seen the Holy Spirit, but they hadn't actually no, no, no. asked Christ what is, what into is their this? It doesn't say they've seen the Holy Spirit. Shared they've shared it. the Holy Spirit. But they hadn't and actually asked Christ into their heart. No, no, no. The only people in the world who have the Holy Spirit are Christians. So if they've shared the Holy Spirit, they're a Christian. Yep. I don't see how you're getting that out of that scripture. And I really want to understand it. Okay. Because it just seems contradictory to everything else we've been saying. So... Just start from the beginning, I guess. <laughs> All right. So let me, let me set it up and let's see if I can get you there. Okay. Here's what it's saying. It says, it is impossible for those who've been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age. They are Christians. If they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Okay? Here's how I believe this passage works. Is it possible that the church being written to here believed you could lose your salvation? 
Is it possible that first century Christians were struggling with this very same doctrine that you and I struggle with? And if that's true, and if he's writing to a church that's struggling with whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation, and he's trying to help them, now let's read it. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of God and the powers of the coming age. If you believe, if you think they fall away, if that's the doctrine you're espousing, if if that's what you're going to teach, that they fall away, if they fall away to ever be brought back again, because you would have to crucify Jesus again if you really believe that. And I believe that in this moment, the writer of Hebrews is actually arguing as passionately as he can, as hard as he can, logically, to say, guys, really? You believe that Christians can lose? If you believe that Christians can lose their salvation, then you believe there's something the first cross didn't cover. You'd have to teach that there would, Jesus would have to come die again. You don't believe that. But if you believe Christians can fall away, then it would be impossible for anyone to ever become a Christian again, if you believe that. And the if there is hypothetical. If you really believe that, do you realize how much that messes up your doctrine, is what the author of Hebrews is saying. Do you realize the ramifications of believing that, if you really think a Christian can lose their salvation? Does that help at all? How many people got there? You're doing better than most theologians, okay? So good for you for doing that. All right. Okay. All right. So how much time? Okay. So here's the last answer. Let's finish it tonight. And we've got this. So here, let's get all the way back to the thing. I'm a Christian. I asked Jesus in my heart. You just told me, Lynn, that all my sins are forgiven, that God's never, that I get to go to heaven. Why shouldn't I go out and sin? All I want is sin. What would you say to somebody who said that to you? I mean, why not? Why not? Why not just go party hardy, go crazy, do all the drugs, just do it? It's a hard issue. It's a hard issue. Yeah. In what way? Well, when you're born again and, and the Holy Spirit's living within you, you don't want to go out and just commit sin after sin after sin because you understand the repercussions of it. You still have to answer to those sins. So. Each time you find yourself in that situation or temptation, whether it's a lustful temptation or stealing or whatever, the Holy Spirit gives you the power to turn away from that and to repent and go the other direction. Okay. So it gives you the power to, to choose right from wrong. But why, I, I, get, I agree with you. Why would I want to? I mean, I get that the Holy Spirit gives me the power not to do the wrong thing. Why would I want to not do the wrong thing? Living, living a, a godly life is much more powerful than living an ungodly I, life. I, I like sin. <laughs> I, man, I'm a sin liker. <laughs> My only answer for that is I've been the sin, sin liker and I yeah. like living in the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But you, all right. So, so here you've come to the place that you said, hey, a, a, a God honoring life is a better life than a God dishonoring life and where where you get to. So I I, I would agree with that, but you know, I think you're an old fuddy duddy. So, all right, I'm I'm teasing because I'm I'm trying, what I'm trying to do guys, I'm trying to play the spoiler and say, you know, because the truth is you and I are going to have this conversation with a 16 year old kid who says, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to heaven. Why not do anything I want to do? It's because of the rewards you'll get when you get to heaven.
Because what? The rewards. Okay, so one of them, guys, I'm just going to... Uh, and Jesus apl- uh, appealed to our mercenary end. For, what did Jesus say? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and dust were corrupt, where it all burns up. If you've got an ounce of sense, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And you go live like the devil in this life, you will be a pauper in heaven. You, you'll, you'll be embarrassed. I'm just, you'll be embarrassed. When you stand there and all those who have honored your Lord and your Savior are, are pushing their rewards back. Did you say, look, I did this because I love you, Jesus. And you're sitting there going, Here, here's Jesus. Here's, here's, here. Okay. And Jesus says, that's a crazy way to live. That's a crazy way to live. Why else? Uh, because sin messes with your head. So yeah. you, well, it doesn't give you a peace of mind. So yeah. if you no, go into the relationship, then stay with it. You know, don't turn around yeah. and do something else. Somewhere, somewhere, and this is the unfortunate part, because most of us learn this by bad experience, that when I'm in control of my life, it always ends up ugly. And when God's in control of my life, it always ends up better. The problem is most of us learn that the hard way, don't we? Why else? Right here, Pastor Glenn. Yep. I think it's because uh, for me, it's when you become a Christian, it's like your baby. You you're, you need the nourishment of the Word, and the Word feeds in your soul and your heart, and you you want to live out those. It's not just listening to the Word, but it's doing the Word. So you become more and more mature as a Christian, because at, at some point we're all baby Christians, and we have to mature in our and in, in our spiritual life with with god and those those lead us to do the right things and not to live in sin all right but here's what i'm saying what if i come to jesus but i still have a secular heart in other words I, my heart just says look i i like my wild living i like i and and now i got my fire escape that's good for you good for you you want to be mature in jesus i don't want to be mature in jesus i want to be a heathen in jesus that's my plan you know, because I'm going to heaven anyways. What are you going to tell me? Deut- Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obedience. Blessings for obedience, okay. I'm with you, and that's kind of what we talked about, the rewards in heaven. And I don't think it's glorifying to God in your personal testimony. It's not appealing to other people, and they see you as hypocritical. Okay, but what if I don't care about other people? <laughs> so you're forgetting I'm a selfish, booger-head, sin-loving slob. Okay, so let me get you back to the question. Why, if, if, if I get to go to heaven no matter what, once I become a Christian, why not live like the devil once I'm a Christian? And I get it. I get that some of you guys are going, you know, it, it just seems like a better life and all that. But what if I don't want a better life? What if I want a sinful life? Pastor Lynn, I yeah. think um, because there are going to be consequences, and I don't think God mm. is going to let you stay here being a bad example for the rest of the followers. So he might just take... Okay, now we're getting closer. Hey, uh, Scripture says, you ready for this? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What's that fear? Spankings. If I disobey God, he is going to spank the holy bahookies out of me if I do this. And, you know, guys, this this is where we're really weird on our parenting, too. And we got this whole thing. I'm going to talk to my two-year-old... Your two-year-old doesn't understand or care, okay? The beginning of wisdom is fear. And the beginning of... The the, the first step is fear of discipline. Then it's 
fear of disappointment. And great parents understand, hey, my child as they start fears the spanking, but a great parent helps their child get to the point of fearing disappointment. I would not do that. Here's what you want. You want your 16-year-old daughter sitting in the back seat with that boy. And when he says, hey, come on, won't you, because I really love you. She's not going to go, no, I can't do that because my dad might spank me. She's 16. You want to have moved her to the place of fear of disappointment. You want her to say, you know what? I may want to do this with all my heart. I love you a ton too, but I would break my dad's heart. I won't do that. Okay? So here's, here's what you say to that baby Christian. Look, I'm just going to tell you this. You cannot, now that you're a child of God, matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 12 says, once you become a son of God, he spanks his children. And if you're truly a child of God, he will not live you, let you live a reckless lifestyle. You can go out there and try to be the prodigal son. He will spank you like crazy. And matter of fact, guys, this is an interesting thing. One of the identifying marks that you've really become a Christian is that he spanks you. If you know somebody who says, I'm a child of God, and they live in constant sin and never get spanked for it, you sit them down and say to them, I'm not sure you know Jesus. Because the Bible says in Hebrews that God disciplines everyone he calls a son. And part, do you, How many of you spank the neighbor kids? Anybody in here spank the neighbor kids? Okay, I'm just going to tell you, I think there's moments that may be appropriate, but you probably, you probably don't spank the neighbor kids near what you spank your own, right? One of the identifying marks of being your child is that you discipline them. You're my son. You're my daughter. I'm going to take care of this. The Bible says the same thing about being a spiritual son or daughter of God. If you're a child of God, he will spank you. And if you know someone who's living in constant sin and claims to be a Christian, it's a legitimate question to say, I don't know if you've ever made that decision because the Bible says that God spanks his children when they're disobedient. I'm going to suggest then there's a second answer to this, and that's the fear of disappointment. And, and hopefully in maturity, we all get past the thing where we go, look, the reason I obey God, and I'm going to tell you, the reason I obey God at this point in my life, hopefully isn't because I'm fearful of a spanking if I don't. Hopefully the reason I, I obey God right now is one of two things. I fear disappointing my Heavenly Father, but even more than that, I love pleasing my Father. And I'm going to say to you, in the very same way that you would want your 16-year-old son, when you give him the keys of the car, and you say, son, I want you to take care of this car while you're out driving it, you don't want him to take care of that car because he's afraid you'll spank him if he comes back. You want him to take care of that car because he says, you know what? My dad trusted me. My dad honored me by letting me take the family car out. And I'm going to honor my dad. By driving it the way he'd want me to drive it. When that 16-year-old comes home and says, Dad, I, I, I drove it the way you'd want me to drive it. I, I didn't let my friends, they wanted to mess around. And I told them, no, we're not going to do that. And Dad, I put some gas in before I brought it home. You're a pretty proud dad. You're not proud over the 15 bucks of gas. You're proud that your son chose to honor you. I'm going to say to you, that if you understand what Jesus did at the cross, there's got to be a point where you move from the baby stage of saying, hey, I'm going to follow God because I'm afraid God will spank me if I don't follow him, to the more mature stage that says, man, the very least I can do after what God has done for me is live a God-honoring life. Which means there is nothing he could ask me to do 
that my answer would not be yes. If he asked me not to date that boy, my answer is yes. If he asked me to serve, my answer is yes. If he asked me to tithe, my answer is yes. If he asked me to go to the missions field, my answer is yes. Because there is nothing my Heavenly Father could ask that's not yes. Because I honor Him. That's why you don't sin once you become a Christian. Not because you're afraid of hell. Because you love your Father. It's a better answer. Let's pray. Hey, dear Lord Jesus, we simply come before you tonight and we just say, we do. We love you. And we are so thankful for what you did for us on the cross. And we're so thankful that you saved us and rescued us. And we, we just refuse to be the disobedient child. We, just, we refuse to be the taking advantage and reckless child. And we choose instead tonight to say, look, we, we will honor you. We'll honor you with what we put on our TV. We will honor you with what goes on our computer. We'll honor you with the way that we talk. We'll honor you with the way that we do our marriages. We'll honor you with the way we... Not because we're afraid you're going to spank us. But because we love you. And because there is nothing you could ask us to do that out of gratitude and thankfulness to you, our answer is yes. God, may that be just true of our hearts tonight. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Hey, thank you guys. Thanks for a good night.